Chapter 21. Napoleon? Napoleon Bridger. Roy read the name aloud. It's certainly colorful, his mother remarked. They were at the breakfast table, Mrs. Eberhardt carefully clipping articles and photographs from the morning newspaper. The front page featured a picture of Roy, Beatrice, and Mother Paula clasping hands in the circle at the demonstration. The head of Beatrice's stepbrother could be seen in the background, looking very much like a fallen coconut with a blonde toupee. The caption beneath the photograph revealed Mother Paula as an actress and former beauty queen named Kimberly Lou Dixon. Beatrice's stepbrother was identified as Napoleon Bridger Leap. Is he back home now? Roy's mother asked. I don't know if you'd call it that, Roy said, but he's back with his mom and stepfather. At the scene of the student protest, Lana Leap had pitched a weepy, spluttering fit and demanded to be reunited with her son. Not knowing any better, police officers had led her out of the crowd toward Mullet Fingers, spooking the bold little owl away from the boy. My champ, my brave little hero! Lana had swooned for the cameras as he wriggled out of the burrow. Roy and Beatrice had watched in helpless disgust as she locked mullet fingers in a smothering, melodramatic hug. Mrs. Eberhardt clipped out the newspaper photo of Lana posing with the boy, who looked extremely uncomfortable. Maybe things will be better for the two of them, Roy's mother said hopefully. No, Mom, she just wanted to be on TV. Roy reached for his backpack. I better get going. Your father wants to see you before school. Oh? Mr. Eberhart had worked late the previous night, and Roy had already gone to sleep by the time he'd gotten home. Is he mad? Roy asked his mother. I don't think so. Mad about what? Roy pointed at the paper, checkerboarded with scissor holes. About what happened yesterday, about what me and Beatrice did. Honey, you didn't break any laws. You didn't hurt anybody, Mrs. Eberhardt said. And all you did was speak out for what you believed was right. Your dad respects that. Roy knew that respects wasn't necessarily the same thing as agrees with. He had a feeling his father was sympathetic on the owl issue, but Mr. Eberhardt had never come out and said so. Mom, is Mother Paula still going to build the pancake house? I don't know, Roy. Apparently, this is Mr. Muckle, this Mr. Muckle fellow lost his temper and tried to strangle a reporter when she asked the same question. No way! Roy and Beatrice had left before the impromptu press conference was over. Mrs. Eberhart held up the clipping. Says so right here. Roy couldn't believe how much space the newspaper had devoted to the owl protest. It must have been the biggest story to hit Coconut Cove since the last hurricane. His mother said, The phone started ringing at six this morning. Your dad made me take it off the hook. I'm really sorry, Mom. Don't be silly. I'm making a whole scrapbook, honey. Something to show your children and grandchildren. I'd rather show them the owls, Roy thought.
if there are any left by then. Roy! It was his father calling from the den. Could you please get the door? A thin young woman with short cropped black hair greeted Roy on the front steps. She was armed with a spiral notebook and a ballpoint pen. Hi, I'm from the Gazette, she announced. Thanks, but we've already got a subscription. The woman laughed. Oh, I don't sell the newspaper. I write it. She extended a hand. Kelly Colfax. On her neck, Roy noticed several, several bluish finger-sized marks that resembled the bruises that Dana Matherson had left on him. Roy figured that Kelly Colfax was the reporter whom Chuck Munkle had tried to choke. I'll go get my father, he said. Oh, that's not necessary. It's you I wanted to speak with, she said. You are Roy Eberhardt, right? Roy felt trapped. He didn't want to act rude, but he certainly didn't want to say anything that might cause more trouble for mullet fingers. Kelly Colfax began firing questions. How did you get involved in the demonstration? Are you friends with Napoleon Bridgley? Were you two involved in the vandalism incidents on the Mother Paula's property? Do you like pancakes? What kind of pancakes? Roy's head was whirling. Finally, he broke in and said, Look, I just went there to stand up for the owls, that's all. As the reporter jotted down Roy's words, the door swung open and there stood Mr. Eberhardt, shaved, showered, and neatly dressed in one of his gray suits. Excuse me, ma'am. May I have a word with my son? Absolutely said Kelly Colfax. Mr. Eberhardt brought Roy inside and closed the door. Roy, you don't have to answer any of her questions. But I just want her to know... Here, give her this. Roy's father clicked open his briefcase and removed a thick manila folder. What is it, Dad? She'll figure it out. Roy opened the folder and broke into a grin. This is the file from City Hall, isn't it? A copy, said his father. That's correct. The one with the Mother Paula's stuff. I tried to find it, but it wasn't there, Roy said. Now I know why. Mr. Eberhardt explained that he had borrowed the file, copied every page, and then taken the material to some lawyers who were experts on environmental matters. So, does Mother Paula have permission to bury the owl dens or not? Roy asked. Was it in the file? His father shook his head. Nope. Roy was exultant, but also puzzled. Dad, shouldn't we be giving this to somebody at the Justice Department? Why do you want me to hand it over to the newspaper? Because there's something there that everybody in Coconut Cove ought to know. Mr. Eberhardt spoke in a hushed and confidential tone. Actually, it's what isn't in there that's, imp that's important. Tell me, Roy said, and his father did. When Roy opened the front door again, Kelly Colfax was sitting with a perky smile. Can we continue our interview? Roy smiled brightly in return. Sorry, but I'm running real late for school. He held out the file. Here, this might help get you your story. 
The reporter tucked her notebook under one arm and snatched the folder from Roy's hands. As she thumbed through the documents, the elation on her face dissolved into frustration. What does this stuff mean, Roy? What exactly am I looking for? I think it's called an EIS, Roy said, reciting what his father had told him, which stands for Environmental Impact Statement. Right, of course, the reporter said. Every big construction project is supposed to do one. That's the law. Yeah, but Mother Paula's EIS isn't in there. You're losing me, Roy. It's supposed to be in that file, he said, but it's not. That means the company never did one, or they lost it on purpose. <gasps> Kelly Colfax looked as if she just won the lottery. Thank you, Roy, she said, embracing the folder with both arms as she backed down the steps. Thank you very, very much. Don't thank me, Roy said under his breath. Thank my dad, who obviously cared about the owls, too. Epilogue. During the following weeks, the Mother Paula's story mushroomed into a full-blown scandal. The missing environmental impact statement made the front page of the Gazette and ultimately proved the, to be the fatal blow to the Pancake House project. It turned out that a thorough EIS had been completed and that the company's biologist had documented three mated pairs of burrowing owls living on the property. In Florida, the birds were strictly protected as a species of special concern so their presence on the Mother Paula's site would have created serious legal problems and a public relations disaster if it had become widely known. Consequently, the environmental impact statement conveniently disappeared from the city files. The report later turned up in a golf bag owned by... Councilman Bruce Grandy, along with an envelope containing approximately $4,500 in cash. Councilman Grandy indignantly denied that the money was a bribe from the pancake people. Then he rushed out and hired the most expensive lawyers in Fort Myers. Meanwhile, Kimberly Lou Dixon quit her TV role as Mother Paula, declaring she couldn't work for a company that would bury baby owls just to sell a few flapjacks. The climax of her tearful announcement came when she displayed her life membership card from the Audubon Society, a moment captured by Entertainment Tonight, Inside Hollywood, and People Magazine which also published the picture of Kimberly Lou, Roy, and Beatrice hand-in-hand hand at the owl protest. It was more media attention than Kimberly Lou Dixon had received as the Miss America runner-up, or even as the future star 
of mutant invaders from Jupiter 7. Roy's mother kept track of the actress's soaring career in the show business columns, where it was reported that she'd signed a deal to appear in the next Adam Sandler movie. By contrast, the owl publicity was a nightmare for Mother Paula's All-American Pancake House Incorporated, which found itself the subject of an unflattering front-page article in the Wall Street Journal. Immediately, the price of the company's stock began sinking like a stone. After going wacko at the groundbreaking ceremony, Chuck E. Muckle got demoted to the post of assistant junior vice president. Although he did not go to jail for choking the newspaper reporter, he was forced to take a class called How to Manage Your Anger, which he failed. Soon afterwards, he resigned from the pancake company and took a job as a cruise director in Miami. In the end, Mother Paula's had no choice but to abandon its plan to put a restaurant on the corner of East Oriole and Woodbury. There would be nagging headlines about the missing EIS, the embarrassing resignation of Kimberly Lou Dixon, the TV footage of Chuck Muckle throttling Kelly Colfax, and last but not least, those darn owls. Everybody was upset about the owls. NBC and CBS sent film crews to Trace Middle School to meet with the student protesters, as well with the faculty members. Roy lay low, but he later heard from Garrett that Miss Hennepin had been given an interview in which she praised the kids who took part of the lunchtime protest and claimed she'd encouraged them to participate. Roy was always amused when grown-ups lied to make themselves look more important. He wasn't watching TV that evening, but his mother burst into a report that Tom Brokaw was talking about him and Beatrice on the network news. Mrs. Eberhardt led Roy to the living room just in time to hear the president of Mother Paula's promise to preserve the Coconut Cove property as a permanent sanctuary for burrowing owls and to donate $50,000 to the Nature Conservancy. We want to assure all our customers that Mother Paula remains strongly committed to protecting our environment, he said, and we deeply regret that the careless actions of a few former employees and contractors may have put these unique little birds in jeopardy. What a crock, Roy muttered. Oi, Andrew Eberhardt. Sorry, Mom, but the guy's not telling the truth. He knew about the owls. They all knew about the owls. Mr. Eberhardt muted the television set. Roy's right, Lizzie. They're just covering their butts. Well, the important thing is you did it, Roy's mother told him. The birds are safe from the pancake people. You should feel great about that. I do, Roy said, but it wasn't me who saved the owls. Mr. Eberhardt came over and put a hand on his son's shoulder. You got the word out, Roy. Without you, nobody would have known what was happening. Nobody would have showed up to protest the bulldozing. Yeah, but it all started because of Beatrice's stepbrother, Roy said. He's the one who should have been on P Peter Brokaw or whatever. 
The whole thing was his idea. I know, honey, Mrs. Eberhardt said, but he's gone. Roy nodded. Sure looks that way. Mullet Fingers had lasted less than 48 hours under the same roof with Lana, who'd spent most of that time on the telephone trying to drum up more TV interviews. Lana had been counting on her son to keep the Leap family in the limelight, which was the last place he wanted to be. With Beatrice's assistance, the boy had snuck out of the house while Lana and Leon were arguing about a new dress that Lana had purchased for $700 in anticipation of appearing on the Oprah Winfrey show. Nobody from Oprah's program even called Lana back, so Leon had demanded that she return the dress and get a full refund. When the leaps shouting reached the same approximate decibel level as a B-52, Beatrice lowered her stepbrother out a bathroom window. Unfortunately, a nosy neighbor had mistaken the escape for a burglary in progress and had notified the police. Mullet Fingers made it only two blocks before speeding patrol cars surrounded him. Lana had been furious to learn her son was up to his old runaway tricks. Out of spite, she told the officers that he'd stolen a valuable tow ring from her jewelry box and demanded that he be locked up in juvenile detention to teach him a lesson. There the boy had lasted only 17 hours before breaking out, this time with an unlikely accomplice. Hiding in the laundry basket with his new best friend, Dana Matherson, undoubtedly had no clue that he'd been specially selected to join the jailbreak. That the scrawny blonde kid knew exactly who he was and knew all the rotten things he'd done to Roy Eberhardt. Being of simple mind, Dana probably thought only of the unexpected good fortune as the laundry basket was loaded into the laundry truck, which was then driven out of the gates of the detention center. Even the approaching sirens probably hadn't worried him until the truck braked and the back doors flew open. It was then that the two young fugitives leaped from the smelly bundle of dirty clothes and made a run for it. Later, when Roy heard the story from Beatrice, he knew instantly why her stepbrother had chosen Dana Matheson as an escape partner. Mullet Fingers was fleet and slippery, while Dana was sluggish and sore-footed, still not fully recovered from his encounter with the rat traps. The perfect decoy. That was Dana. Sure enough, the police had easily caught up with the big thug, though he shook off the two officers before eventually being tackled and handcuffed. By then, Beatrice's stepbrother was a distant blur, a bronze-colored wisp vanishing into the snarled tree line. The police never found him, nor did they search particularly hard. Dana was the prize catch, the one with the rap sheet and the bad attitude. Roy couldn't find mullet fingers either. Many times he'd ridden his bicycle to the junkyard and checked the JoJo's ice cream truck, but it was always empty. Then one day the truck itself vanished, dragged off and pressed into a rusty cube of scrap metal. Beatrice Leap knew where her stepbrother was hiding, but he'd sworn her to secrecy. Sorry, Tex, she told Roy. I made a blood promise. So yes, the kid was gone. 
and Roy knew he'd never see Napoleon Bridger again unless he wanted to be seen. He'll be all right. He's a survivor, Roy said for his mother's benefit. I hope you're right, she said, but he's so young. Hey, I've got an idea. Roy's father jangled his car keys. Let's go for a ride. When the Eberharts arrived at the corner of Woodbury and East Oriel, two other vehicles were already parked at the fence gate. One was a squad car and the other was a blue pickup truck. Roy recognized both of them. Officer David Delinko had stopped on his way home from the police station, where he received another commendation from the chief, this time for aiding in the recapture of Dana Matherson. Leroy Curly Brannett, who was temporarily between jobs, had been driving his wife and mother-in-law to the outlet mall when he decided to make the brief detour. Like the Eberharts, they'd come to see the owls. As dusk fell, they waited in a friendly and uncomplicated silence, though there was plenty they could have talked about. Except for the fence with its fading streamers, the land bore no sign that the Pancake House people had ever been there. Curly's trailer had been towed, the earth-moving machines hauled away, the traveling Johnnies returned to their toilet rental company. Even the survey stakes were gone, uprooted and crated off with the trash. Gradually, the night air filled with the buzz of crickets and Roy smiled to himself, remembering the boxful he released there. Obviously, the owls had plenty of other bugs to eat. Before long, a pair of the birds popped out of the nearby burrow. They were followed by a wobbly-legged youngster that looked as fragile as a Christmas ornament. In unison, the owls rotated their onion-sized heads to stare at the humans who were staring at them. Roy could only imagine what they were thinking. I gotta admit, Curly said with a fond grunt, they're kind of cute. One Saturday, after the Mother Paula's scandal had died down, Roy went to watch Beatrice and her friends play a soccer game. It was sweltering, but Roy had resigned himself to the fact that there was no change of seasons in South Florida, only mild variations of summer. And though he missed the crisp Montana autumns, Roy found himself daydreaming less often about the place. Today, the sun lit up the green soccer field like a neon carpet, and Roy was happy to peel off his t-shirt and bake. Beatrice scored three goals before she noticed him sprawled in the bleachers. When she waved, Roy gave her two thumbs up and chuckled, because it was pretty funny. Beatrice the bear waving at Tex, the new kid. The high sun and the streaming heat reminded Roy of another bright afternoon not so long ago, in a place not so far off. Before the soccer match ended, he grabbed his shirt and slipped away. It was a short ride from the soccer field to the hidden creek. Roy chained his bike to a gnarly old stump and picked his way through the tangled trees. The tide was very high, and the only weather-beaten wedge of the Molly Bell's pilot house showed above the waterline. Roy hung his sneakers on a forked limb and swam out toward the wreck, the warm current nudging him along. With both hands, he grabbed the lip of the pilot house roof and hoisted himself up top to the warp on the warped bare wood. There was scarcely enough space for a dry perch. Roy lay on his belly, blinked the salt from his eyes and waited. The quiet wrapped around him like a soft blanket. 
First, he spotted the T-shaped shadow of the osprey crossing the pale green water beneath him. Later came the white heron gliding low in a futile search of a shallow edge to wave. Eventually, the bird lighted halfway up a black mangrove, squawking irritably about the high tides. The elegant company was welcome, but Roy kept his eyes fastened on the creek. The splash of a feeding tarpon upstreamed him. Upstream put him on alert, and sure enough, the surface of the water began to shake and boil. Within moments, a school of mullet erupted, sleek bars of silver shooting airborne again and again. Atop the pilot house, Roy scooted forward as far as he dared, dangling both arms. The mullet quit jumping, but assembled into a V-shaped squadron that pushed a nervous ripple down the middle of the creek toward the Maybell. Soon the water beneath them darkened, and Roy could make out the blunt-headed shapes of individual fish, each swimming frantically for its life. As the school approached the sunken crab boat, it divided as cleanly as if it had been sliced by a saber. Quickly, Roy picked up, picked out one fish and teetering, teetering precariously, plunged both hands into the current. For one thrilling moment, he actually felt it in his grasp, as cool and slick and magical as mercury. He squeezed his fingers into fists, but the mullet easily jetted free, leaping once before it rejoined the fleeting school. Roy sat up and gazed at his dripping, empty palms. Impossible, he thought. Nobody could catch one of those darn things, barehanded, not even Beatrice's stepbrother. It must have been a trick, some sort of clever illusion. A noise like a laugh came out from the dense knotted mangroves. Roy assumed it was the heron, but when he looked up, he saw that the bird had gone. Slowly he rose, shielding his brow from the sun's glare. That you? he shouted. Napoleon Bridger, is that you? Nothing. Roy waited and waited until the sun dropped low and the creek draped in shadows. No more laughing sounds came from the trees. Reluctantly, he slid off the molly bell and let the falling tide carry him to shore. Robotically, he got into his clothes, though when he reached for his shoes, he saw that only one was hanging from the forked bow. His right sneaker was missing. Roy put on the left sneaker and went hopping in search of the other. He soon found it, half submerged in the shallows beneath the branches where he figured it must have fallen. Yet, when he bent to pick it up, he, it wouldn't come loose. The laces had been securely entwined around a barnacle-encrusted root. Roy's fingers trembled as he undid the precisely tied clove hitch knots. He lifted the soggy sneaker and peeked inside. There, he spied a mullet, no larger than a man's index finger flipping and splashing to protest its captivity. Roy emptied the baby fish into his hand and waded deeper into the creek. Gently, he placed the mullet in the water where it had flashed once and vanished like a spark. Roy stood motionless, listening intently, but all he heard was the hum of mosquitoes and the low whisper of the tide. The running boy was already gone. As Roy laced on his other sneaker, he laughed to himself. 
So the great barehanded mullet grab wasn't a trick. It wasn't impossible after all. Guess I'll have to come back another day and try again, Roy thought. That's what a real Florida boy would do. The end. Well, fifth grade, I hope you enjoyed listening to Hoot. It was a new experience for me to make a podcast, and I really enjoyed it. I realized today it reminded me of when I was a little girl and would call the public library on a landline, good old-fashioned telephone, and listen to recorded stories being read to me over the phone. So maybe that's why I jumped on board and did this for you guys. Crazy way to end your fifth grade year. I'm very proud of all the hard work you've done. Now I need you to take your quiz on Google Forms and then take an AR quiz and get some mega points.